This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. John Paul McDuffie from the Management Department at the Wharton School. I'm here with J.D. Power III, or J. David Power, also known uh, to his friends and everyone else as Dave Power. He has been our special guest at a conference of the Mac Institute for Management Innovation on the theme of uh, disruptive technologies, what happens when they meet tightly integrated systems. Uh, Dave brought his own disruptive uh, impact to the auto industry through the company he ran that bears his name, uh, which delivered to the public reports on the quality of automobiles uh, publicly and with the best and the worst identified. So I'm here to talk to Dave about his career uh, based on a new book that has been published about him. So Dave, welcome to Wharton. Thank you, John Paul. So uh, the career that you've had started with a number of experiences uh, after you graduated from Wharton. I forgot to mention you're a Wharton grad. Yes. And then you started your own firm. So it's, it's, a, it's almost a modern uh, career path when I think about what my students say. They, they say, I want to work for a while, and then I want to start my own business. So uh, tell us some of the things that really uh, brought you to that decision. You graduated from Wharton, and you decided to go to the auto industry. Why was that? Because 14% um, of all... Uh jobs in the United States in the 50s were due to the automobile industry, and I thought uh, that gave me plenty of chance to <laughs> make a name for myself uh, in that industry. Now, you, you went to Ford, but uh, they, they, they didn't put you in the automotive division right off. Where, tell right, us about that. And I, I was a marketing major, and they put me into finance. Uh, so-called training program, which was on-the-job training, uh -huh. and um, I uh, uh, learned a hell of a lot. Uh, it was uh, just uh, an industry, the tractor industry, was uh, starting to go downhill fast because of the mechanization of the farms mm -hmm. with bigger equipment. Yep. The little tractors no longer had a place. And you were doing auditing, so you got to look at how the dealership system worked, which, again, wasn't what you expected, but uh, probably had an impact, because you ended up studying dealers the rest of your career. Yes. Uh, I audited uh, the dealers after a sales contest. I arrived uh, just after the contest was over, and they suspected that uh, they were getting credit for vehicles that uh, tractors or implements that they hadn't sold yet, uh -huh. and we had to go around and cross-check them. Yeah. That was uh, an experience that gave me uh, really uh, hands-on uh, reactions of people when they get caught. Sure. <laughs> the uh, the next step for you was out of Ford and into. The market research business for a while. So tell us, tell us about what you yes. learned from that experience. Well, I I wanted to get out of finance, and Ford wouldn't transfer me. So I ended up with uh, Marplan, the market research arm of McCann Erickson, mm -hmm. and they had just won the Buick and GMC account. Okay, and so we started doing a lot of uh, 
research for them, market research. And you, you learned a few things about how market research was done that, yes. that you didn't necessarily like, right? Right. I had a situation where I was representing Buick Division in this meeting. They, were, they had a big project, million and a half dollars uh, at that time was huge. Yeah. And uh, we uh, were uh, told to measure the effectiveness of the advertising of all of the General Motors divisions. Mm -hmm. So we had to create a questionnaire to do it. And uh, the first day, we got to question 1A through 1B at lunch and then came back and it was, we didn't even reach question two. Wow. We had about 40 people in the room trying to agree on the way the question should be. Wow. So uh, the customer conducted. really controlled very tightly what data could even be collected. Yes. And, and, and that data came back just to that customer. Yes. Yes, it was, uh, uh, if you did work for one car company, you had to remain uh, captive to that. You couldn't work with any other car company. Yeah. The same way it was with the advertising with the companies. Advertising. Right? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I, I know that that became a an important principle for your business that you would yes. you would be independent and 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 not be uh, be captive in that way. Uh, you worked for McCullough, a company that made chainsaws. Uh, is a very interesting yes. part of that experience, yes. which I guess taught you about listening to the customer. Yes. Uh, we've, when I uh, was in Marplan in uh, Los Angeles, we conducted a study for their client, which was McCulloch. And it was uh, interesting because what I found is that they were still doing their forecasting based on the number of trees that were going to be cut down <laughs> in the Pacific Northwest and uh, the uh, trees in the southeast, uh, the pine trees that uh, yeah. were made pulp. Yeah. And uh, they forgot about the casual user uh -huh. that was just the family uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, chainsaw. And the and trees the, trees don't buy the, uh, the the home version of the chainsaw, right. right? And we opened up a whole new uh, uh, view of uh, what they had to do. And the uh, they after I finished the study, uh, they asked the officials at McCann Erickson if uh, they could uh, offer me a job as director of corporate planning, hmm. and. Uh, since uh, they were the client, uh, they said okay. Uh, okay, and that's how I got to uh, uh, be uh, yeah. uh, an employee of the, of, of McCulloch. the McCulloch. Yeah. And I remember uh, from the book that another thing you learned is that the they basically were applying the same standards they applied to their professional chainsaws to the home equipment. So yeah. it was built to uh, operate 200 hours a year, and these folks were probably only using it five or six. Five or six hours. Yes. Completely over-engineered. You, you might have right. seen that a few times in the auto industry, too. Yes. <laughs> so sometime around there, some friends came to visit, and you decided to start your own firm. So tell us about that. Yes. Uh, my classmate at Wharton uh, came into town from Rochester, New York, with two other young fellows. Mm -hmm. 
All three of them had their MBAs and were going out to start a new company. This is in 1968, very early 68. Mm -hmm. And uh, they uh, said that they had quit their jobs, and they all had good jobs. Uh, General Electric, uh, um, oh, Kodak, Kodak and, and Xerox, probably, yeah. And Xerox. Yeah. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, we're, we're going to measure the meters at homes uh, via satellite. And this is back in 68. We only <laughs> had one or two satellites up there then. <laughs> and uh, I said, that's crazy. And they said, well, if we don't make it, uh, we'll get another job. Uh-huh. And I thought about it. And I went home and talked to my wife about it. And she said, you should start your own company. So Great. that's how we did it. Yeah. And, and your, your used, wife was an important partner in the business from the start. Right. And uh, we had child labor uh-huh. <laughs> rights. They'll never let me down <laughs> now. <laughs> that's right. It's a wonderful uh, image from the book of as the surveys are being sent out to the to the consumers, yeah, your four kids are taping carefully, taping the shiny quarter on each one to make it's that extra yes. bit of incentive to get the response. Face up, right? Uh, yes. The head had to be square, uh, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we got uh, perhaps the first uh, double-sided Scotch tape, ah, <laughs> which was important too. Yeah, exactly. So, Speeded uh, up the process. It did. Yeah. So. Uh, you, of course, started with direct mail surveys. Uh, you have, with the auto industry, uh, this resource, which not every country has, which is uh, this third-party RL Poke, which, which registers every new vehicle. And uh, you, I, I heard you say uh, something about the response rate you got, it, it, something that would amaze most market researchers these days. First uh, few uh, uh, surveys that we did we got uh, close to 50% response rate. Wow. And it ran uh, 30 to 50% uh, consistently because people wanted to talk about their cars. Yeah, yeah. Some of and, them sent back uh, handwritten notes and copies of invoices yes. and with circles on them, and yes. they were so and, revved uh, up about we it. We collected those, about 10% of them, uh, included something like that, even photographs of uh, the paint fading or yeah. the trunk lid leaking. And so uh, uh, we would uh, send them on to the manufacturer as we told them in our cover letter that uh, we would do that. And uh, we lost sight of what the manufacturers did uh, with them. Some of them got more than others. Mm-hmm. Had you already resolved to publicly disclose the data on all the manufacturers with the no, from not the a, surveys? Not not at not that yet. Yeah. time, and it was supposed to be confidential. Okay, but uh, when we did the Mazda rotary engine survey, uh-huh. um, we found a problem with it. The first uh, two thousand buyers, and um, the O ring was. Uh, failing at uh, once it hit 30,000 miles and the O-ring kept the cooling system uh, 
from uh, leaking out or leaking into the engine, and it just uh, started failing, and they'd have to take the whole engine out of the car to replace it. Wow. So, yeah, this was the, <coughs> this was the Wankel engine, which was greeted yes, as quite an innovation, engine. and it was also a... Uh, saved improved gas gas mileage. In but. one of the car companies that subscribed to it, the survey <coughs> results released it to the Wall Street Journal. Ah, not you. No. But a, competi <coughs> a competitor, basically. And we had to, uh, they called me first. And we um, said, how did you get a hold of it? And the <laughs> editor said, we have our sources. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was from Detroit, so I uh -huh. knew it was one of the big three. They uh, really said they were going to do an article. And uh, I said, well, uh, I'd like you to have the benefit of my balanced press release on this. And he said, okay, get it to us right away. At the, at, the, at the moment, there was no such press release, right? But you right. set out to write I, it immediately. <laughs> I sat, uh, sat down and immediately wrote it on a pad. Yeah. <clears throat> and we had to find a way of getting it right to Detroit. Yeah. And we uh, ended up finding somebody with a telex machine uh -huh. in the gal center. Uh -huh. And we were on the front page. Sure. The following day, and, uh, and that's when you learned the the power of the press essentially yes. to uh, sort of amplify your data and and get yes. the message across. It went viral, and we were in uh, just about every newspaper, radio, and TV station. Yeah. Uh, for a week. Yeah. So, looking at the present day and at the future a bit, uh, let me ask you two questions. One is about new technologies. So uh, it, uh, often executives and engineers in the auto companies say, uh, you know, if we're slow with new technologies, the customers complain because they want the new functionality. But if we put it in and it doesn't work perfectly the first time or doesn't work perfectly every time or we have trouble learning it, then, then they're really grumpy about it. And yes. Ford is uh, in the news these days for uh, quality complaints about sync and my Ford Touch. Uh, Mercedes had the issue with the S-Class. It's a, it's a repeated story, and it would show up in your surveys, of course. So what's, what's your, what are your thoughts on the, the challenges from both the automaker and the consumer side of, of well, bringing this the, new technology in? I think there's about um, 5 or 10% Buyers want that advanced information. Okay. The ninety percent that don't are the ones who complain. So, do you think the automakers are too responsive yes. to those lead lead users? Yes. Uh huh. So, okay. So they get out ahead of themselves. Uh, I guess another issue is that each company really does their own thing, right? So there's <clears throat> there's there's virtually no standards for. These right. things, as we see in computers, or and multiple car households, right now, very common. Yeah, they have different brands, and they have to adapt to yeah the electronics in the particular car they're yeah. driving. And who wants to learn? Shift. Who wants to learn three different systems? Yes. Yeah. 
No, it's a it's an industry that's always been resistant to standardizing at the industry level. They want to they want to the control it. Handheld that they use all the time when they get in the car, that's better than sure. using what, at least now, yeah. than what is in the car. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know people say sometimes that the auto companies missed a chance to get people using car phones yes. because they were <clears throat> slow to install them. But if you imagine, once you got a physically installed car phone and how slow, how fast the technology moved and how infrequently you replace your car, you can imagine how quickly that car phone would have seemed very, very clunky. Yes. Let me ask you about the future of dealers again, remembering that, that uh, dealers have been an important part of your business right along. Uh, you, you stirred some controversy uh, in the early 2000s with a prediction that, uh, you know, the traditional dealership might, uh, its days might be numbered. There was a threat from uh, more of a big box model or a, a large mega dealer model. There might be threats from other kinds of things like direct sales through the internet. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, well, it caused the controversy a, and what you think now, it about caused, a decade later. caused quite a bit of controversy. Yeah. And uh, I think it was <clears throat> the uh, idea that, uh, well, I know it was because they cut out my introduction part explaining why I was saying oh, what was right. going on. Yeah. And it uh, they didn't publish sounded your, like your full uh, I was going, uh, at the end I said if they uh, didn't like uh, what I was saying, they should talk to Walmart. Uh -huh. And that set a uh -huh. button off. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, the dealers were all upset. As you look at what's changed in the last 10 years, do you, do you still uh, predict a, a threatened future for the traditional auto dealer? Or have, you, do you, have they adapted uh, in, in, uh, in good ways? Well, they're adapting in one way that is uh, good, uh, I guess, for the dealers, is they're consolidating. <clears throat> there were 50,000 dealers in uh, 1950, okay, wow. uh, franchised new car dealers. Uh, today there's 17,000. Wow, and so those, about a third, and obviously much yes. higher sales. And Auto Nation and uh, Group One and yeah. other consolidators uh, are taking up uh, several thousand dealers uh, yeah. into their. Fold, and they aren't truly dealers any longer when they sure. do that. Sure. What so about the whole issue of direct sales uh, from the manufacturer to the customer through the internet? That's there are these state laws that mostly prohibit that yes. now. Do you, do you yes. see those going away, or is the dealer uh, were, lobby too strong? Too, I th I think the lobbying is very difficult for dealers today. What has happened is the consumer has more information than the dealer. Yeah. Yeah. And they control the market. Yeah. And it's going to be determined by them. And it's going to be determined uh, what the manufacturers have to build to remain competitive. It's the dealer in charge. Yeah. This change has happened over the last 10 years, yeah. and it's uh, only going to get uh, more. And they get instant information. Uh, 
it's it's amazing the customer yeah. and they don't want to sit down and haggle the price or what have you they so, want it done so they they're going to uh, demand change do you uh, support the efforts of Tesla's CEO Elon Musk to uh, to break those laws and get uh, the possibility of direct sales I know he's challenged the law in Texas yes. and in New York State I um, I believe that uh, the laws are not reasonable, uh-huh. and uh, they were developed in the 1950s when there were a lot of dealers, and it was to, to give the dealers um, some say with the manufacturers who were dictating everything. And so uh, they got that uh, covered, and uh, now they're... Uh, their value to the whole operation of selling the vehicles is uh, diminished. Yeah. And uh, now they're saying they so. should still be in force. Yeah. And I don't think they're going to uh, be able to hold up on it. Yeah. And so right. we, we see more changes coming down the route. Okay, my last question then, uh, another look into the crystal ball uh, at the conference today, we are hearing about uh, autonomous vehicles and uh, the you know the self-driving car. Uh, is is this uh, a, a trend that you think consumers will want? Uh, it's like you say, uh, maybe consumers don't always want this latest functionality. But there's a lot of claims about better safety, of course, as well as some of the convenience of not having to to give as much attention to driving. Yeah, well, I I think that. Uh Maybe for the average driver, they'll accept it. Uh, but it takes the fun out of driving. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a different story for the automotive enthusiast. Yes. Uh, but uh, I think it's, it's going to be in the, our future. Yeah. And uh, you'll still perhaps be able to override the... Yes, I'm sure that's right. You'll be able the to override The speed limit it. and yeah. so forth. One of our speakers uh, got a laugh when he said, most male drivers say that they would like a system like that for their wife and their kids, (laughs) but not for them. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Dave. It's a great pleasure to have you here, to have a chance to talk to you. And uh, again, your book was a a marvelous read about a, a, a fascinating career. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.